The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So we're moving on now to Chapter 7. We're following Jack Hornfield's book, The Wise Heart. And Chapter 7 is about the power, the efficiency, the great uh, sort of capacity of mindfulness to open up, to free up our lives. And it's always a little strange to put so much emphasis on something that seemingly is pretty insignificant. You know, we take mindfulness, we take this capacity to be aware for granted. And of course, we feel like we've been aware all through life so that the thought, you know, that somehow mindfulness is going to save us seems a little bit uh, like putting the eggs in the wrong basket. I mean, you've had many opportunities to save me mindfulness and you haven't saved me yet. But part of it is we haven't really refined the experience of mindfulness. Most of us are very much being swept away by distractedness and superficiality. So much so we don't even realize how distracted we are. You know, I always kind of kiddingly say this, if we did a survey and if we ask people, are you mindful? Everyone's going to say, yeah, I'm mindful. I'm awake. I'm paying attention. So this is our first, like, uh, hurdle, I guess, in practice is some some recognition that we're so distracted, so caught up in things that we don't realize. We're not mindful enough to even realize that our mind is basically lost in the content of our lives and our reactivity. In a way, it's the it's probably the most poignant tragedy about our human lives is the pervasiveness of our distractedness and, and, and the resultant superficiality and reactivity. Every once in a while, you know, people, each of us probably have had moments where we've woken up to some degree. And in that moment of waking up, one of the first things we notice in a way, is the aftertaste of having been distracted and superficial for a long time. And it can, there can be an experience of real grief or disappointment of having been living the life we've been living. You know that experience where, in a flash almost, we get a taste of what's been going on the last week or month or decade or since we were born. And, and we don't like what we're tasting. You know, it's like, is this what my life is about? You know, sort of whatever it is for us, you know, the endless pursuit of crossword puzzles or, you know, new kitchen utensils or the perfect partner. But, you know, basically we have our handful or several handfuls of obsessions of distractions that dominate our mind. 
many of them might be seemingly very wholesome. So, you know, I, I say things like, you know, kitchen gadgets or the best restaurant in town. Or, but there could be really wholesome obsessions that we have, like how to take care of my son or how to, you know, save up enough money so I can retire someday. Or how can I figure out what this Buddhist mindfulness stuff is all about? I mean, that can be an obsession too. Uh, an excuse for distraction. An, uh, an excuse for endless spinning of the thinking mind. And then the emotions that tag along with the thinking, that get generated out of the thinking. So, by definition, Mindfulness is that quality of mind that first and foremost reveals or exposes distractedness and superficiality. It's like the different habits of mind that are all about not wanting to be here. Like we want to be lost in our thoughts about things or skimming the surface, but we don't really want to be sort of empty of distraction and therefore receptive, very sensitive. So sensitive that the sensitivity isn't under the influence of anything. So we could call it like, sometimes we call it bare attention, raw sensitivity. This is one of the aspects or qualities of mindfulness. So we're not, the mind isn't confused by any projection or overlay, conceptual overlay that might be arising in the mind. So when we're with the breath, we're not confused by any thoughts we have about the breath. That touching sensations we're, no, we're knowing, you know, as the air comes in, for example, and obviously the air touches the skin around the nostrils. If we're knowing that experience without being confused by any image or idea that mind might be generating about the breath, about breathing, about mindfulness of breathing, or anything. There may be thoughts or there may not be thoughts, but the mind isn't confused. It's interested, it's open, it's aware of touching. Or if you're feeling your breath down in the belly, it's aware of movement, that movement of the abdominal wall. Without the confusion of some image of the abdominal wall, like a little video being projected in the mind as if we're watching the expansion of the abdomen. Because we're not aware, it's not about being mindful of our, you know, like of some mental image. It's mindful of the actual movement of the abdominal wall. <coughs> so we use these simple experiences like the belly moving or the air touching the skin in order to get a sense of how simple awareness, mindful attention can be. And it's its simplicity itself that gives it real power. What makes mindfulness, a moment of mindfulness, powerfully transforming isn't the particular object of mindfulness that, you know, knowing the sensations at the nostrils or knowing the belly moving or let's say we're just more generally mindful of the body sitting, or subtle sensations are not so subtle. But it isn't the particular sensation or the particular object that makes mindfulness transforming. 
What makes mindfulness transforming is the abandonment of distraction, of the mental fixation or mental reactivity. That's what's so transforming. So when we cultivate mindfulness, it's really just as much about what we're abandoning. You know, the abandoning of distractedness, the abandoning of superficiality, the abandoning of living our lives through our thoughts about things. Like even now, you know, you're at a Buddhist meditation center and your thoughts about being at a Buddhist meditation center can be so dominating the mind that it's not easy to actually be here. You know, the experience of actually being here right now is completely different than any thought about being here. It's like they're two different experiences entirely. So when we just tune into the rawness of being here, like just the direct experience of sitting, the direct experience of hearing, feeling the air against, against the skin, just noticing how the mind is energetically. Is it restless? Is it sleepy? This is what it means to be here. You know, these are the, in a sense, the components, the, the bits of reality here and now. And content, too, is part of those bits of reality that sort of makes up the present moment. But the trouble is, when we have a thought or an emotion, we tend to get confused by it. It's not like we simply know, oh, there's that thought being known, or this emotion being known. There's a thought being known, and then the mind, through the process of identification, it gets lost, it proliferates. And in that proliferation, in that being caught or spinning away in thought, there is no mindful awareness that this is how it is now, right? So when we reflect back on today, how much of the day there was no presence, there was no sense, oh, this is being known, this is happening, this is how it is. Maybe a moment here, a couple moments there, but mostly we were like that image the Buddha often used of being swept away by a flood. I've seen some of the more recent uh, videotapes um, about the tsunami, on the tsunami. I don't know if you've seen them, but they're pretty amazing to see the wall of water coming in. It just so unlike a normal wave that goes in and immediately out, but just like a, a wall of water flowing through it. And it's like that, just sweeping everything away, including buildings. And it's the same way when particular content, emotion comes, it just, in a sense, sweeps our life away. We lose our life, like the Buddha says in one of the passages. You know, being heedless, being without mindfulness, it's as if you're already dead. Because in a way, we're on automatic pilot. There's no awareness, there's no sense, oh, it's just this, this life being known, this life happening. <coughs> so mindfulness, in order to break through the distractedness and the superficiality, 
And really the addictiveness, the addiction to content, to our ideas about things, it really relies on that simplicity and freedom from having to figure it out, right? Because it, you know, the, the thing that keeps pulling us into our habits of distractedness and superficiality is we think we have to understand the moment, like understand it conceptually. Like, what is it to be at Common Ground Meditation Center on Wednesday night? But actually, to be a human being, you don't really need an answer to that question. It's like, being here right now is the answer to that question. We don't need a thought to tell us what our life is like right now. Like, are you a good person or a bad person? Are you doing pretty good in life or not so well in life? It's like all of the answers, you know, this is the maybe ironic thing, all of the answers to our questions really come down to this. It's like this resolves being mindful. This is why it's said, you know, mindfulness is a moment of freedom. Because when we're fully mindful, we don't have to answer any questions. The moment of being mindful, in a way, is an answer. It's sort of, it's an answer not that it's, you know, directly addressing the questions that we tend to ask, but it's undermining the need to ask questions. It's like a moment of mindfulness removes doubt from the mind. There's something about being fully present that is inherently satisfying. And, and this gives you a sense of why we get addicted to distractedness and superficiality. There's something about not being mindful that makes us uneasy. And when we're uneasy, we want to deal with that uneasiness. But the uneasiness is caused by not being mindful. But what we do with the uneasiness is we think about it. Why am I so uneasy? Why am I so tired? Why am I so restless? Why do I feel anxious? And so we keep doing what we always do and getting what we always got. We get more restlessness, more exhaustion, more dullness, more reactivity. Because we're basically feeding distractedness and superficiality. We're not really being present. We're not really directly experiencing life as it is. So we're not being fed in that most important way. This is a nice way to think about mindfulness or being present. It's like the most important food. why if you you know if you really get serious and you start sitting pretty regularly going on retreats from time to time you'll start to feel a real uh, hunger a wholesome hunger when you've been more or less disconnected not mindful for a while it's like there will be this wholesome intention to come back to life, you know, come back to the present moment, to ground, to open, to get to this place where we don't need to do anything. You know, that's the thing about mindfulness. When we're really mindful with the body or with the breath or with hearing or with whatever is happening in the present moment, 
the mindfulness doesn't make us a passive blob, but that moment, that moment of mindfulness is complete in and of itself. There's a feeling of completeness or fullness. Now, it doesn't mean we're not going to do something. We can be mindful and do something, like walk or talk or eat, or we can be mindful mindful of just sitting or standing. So it isn't about whether we're doing something or not. It's really about, in that activity, in that moment of knowing, whether we're setting in motion this sort of neurotic, endless reactivity, or whether we're tasting a moment of real satisfaction, real release, wholeness. Like this moment is conducive for contentment, for calm, for peace. The more we have faith, uh, start developing confidence in the power of mindfulness, and to really see it opposed to so much of our mental conditioning, our cultural conditioning to run, to push, to resist, to react, to fantasize, compare. The more we see it as a counterpart or counterweight to that, like we have this other possibility of being relaxing into clarity, to the simple, clear, bare presence with the body, with whatever is true in the moment, the way it is now. We start to have confidence then that we can bring it to more and more places. Because generally, mindfulness arises when we feel safe. You know, people, maybe when you're a child, but probably most of us could remember you know, amazing moments. They're not really amazing, they're kind of natural moments, but compared to our other moments where we're distracted and being superficial, they seem amazing, where we were just happened to be mindful. You know, it could be you were walking through the woods someday when you were a kid, or last week, or hearing a sound, and for whatever reason, the conditions arose, and the mind wasn't distracted, it wasn't superficial, it was simple, it was pure, pure knowing, pure receptivity. And that moment kind of stands out, like, wow, what was that? So that's what, you know, more and more of these moments, remembering, recalling, being there in the moment, like recognizing in the moment what's happening. Oh, this is the experience of mindfulness. We can be mindful of mindfulness, mindful of the effect of mindfulness, just like we can be mindful of the effects of distractedness and reactivity and superficiality, how hollow that feels, how unsatisfying that is. Then we get inspired to be mindful in more challenging places. So our sitting practice, you know, by definition, we're creating the easiest conditions possible to be mindful. Quiet space, as much as we can, an uncluttered space so that there aren't things triggering distraction. Time of day where we feel not too sleepy, not too restless, not too full, not too hungry. You know, where there aren't going to be cell phones going off or other distractions. 
So that's what we mean by safety. But then we want to bring mindfulness everywhere. And, it, and, and basically, we're going to be on that fence where we're going to feel the strong compulsion to want to react, to want to think, to want to get lost in you know, the different patterns, predictable ways that we get lost. And next to that will be the confidence we have in this simple presence. And it will be like a war in a way. You know, like one moment sliding, falling into the distractedness, the reactivity. Other moments when the confidence is a little clearer, we show up with mindfulness with whatever's going on. The Buddha talked about this too, you know, how as he was before his deep awakening, he was a practitioner like we are, and it wasn't always easy to be mindful. One, this is just one uh, from Jack Kornfield's uh, translated one passage from the Buddhist teachings where he describes about how he dealt with his fears, like being mindful with fear. So he says, how would it be if in the dark of the month, right, with no moon, I were to enter the most strange and frightening places near tombs in the thick of the forest that I might come to understand fear and terror and doing so, a wild animal would approach, or the wind rustles the leaves, and I would think, perhaps the fear and terror now comes. And being resolved to dispel the hold that fear and terror of that fear and terror, I remained in whatever posture it arose, sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. I did not change until I had faced the fear and terror in that very posture, until I was free of its hold upon me. And having this thought, I did so. By facing the fear and terror, I became free. Another place the Buddha talks about how movement masks dukkha, stress, or suffering. Movement masks suffering or stress. Because that's often how we deal with difficulty in life. We move. We do something. That's what I mean by reactivity. Life is difficult and we think about it. That's an activity. Life is difficult and we run away. Life is difficult and we punch, you know. So these are all different kinds of movement. Or we're sitting and the sit gets difficult and we move. As a way of modifying or trying to control the difficulty that's arising in the moment. Now mindfulness is a different approach, right? Mindfulness has this very powerful quality of receptivity. So it's like we're the earth itself. And this is an image the Buddha used quite often in talking about the practice. Be like the earth. You know, people urinate on the earth. The earth doesn't shudder. It just receives the urine. You know, people do all kinds of things on the earth. And the earth receives it. Now, I'm not saying this is a strategy for life. It's a particular mental training that allows us to be responsive, skillful in the world. So it's not like we, you know, we're going to sit and our child will be crying or our partner will be talking to us and we'll be like the earth receiving that particular sprinkle, <laughs> whatever it might be. You know, the practice is internally to be that in that full receptive mode 
that in that full receptive mode, we're going to see action arise. And we receive that too. We hear our voice saying, Honey, how are you? You know? And we receive that too. So part of what we're being receptive to is the movement of our personality, the movement of our voice, the movement of thought. We're not controlling anything. Do you understand the difference? So one, like passivity would mean that really isn't mindfulness because passivity is control. Right? I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to give up. I'm not going to react. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to think anything. That's called repression. We're putting the brakes on everything and nothing's allowed. I give up. You know, that's, that's my belief system. You know, nothing's worth doing or whatever might inspire you to be so-called passive. But mindfulness is just the opposite. It's, in a way, it's perfectly nimble and responsive because even though we may train, you know, in our meditation po- uh, posture to be still, it's just the training. What we're doing is it makes it easy in that quiet, uncluttered room, sitting without the cell phones or the phone, other phones or music and other distractions. We're, in a way, we're rediscovering that um, that view or that understanding of presence mindful presence, mindful awareness. And we're mindful of external things like sounds. We're mindful of sensations, mindful of the sensations of the breath, mindfulness of thoughts. But when we take it on the road after that formal training we do every day in our meditation time, then we're also mindful of action, thought as action, you know, moving, doing things with the body, thinking. So we're practicing being mindful. Now it's a little bit more difficult because these actions tend to get us caught up in attachment or identification. But we just do the best we can to be aware of what we're thinking, aware of what we're saying, and aware of what we're doing, and to be in that receptive mode. Oh, Mark is saying this now. Mark is doing this now with his body. Mark is thinking this now. And it sounds a little bit like uh, a mental illness, you know, that we're disassociating or something like that. But the key is to practice this and see if it actually helps make us more functional in life. In a way, uh, one of the, I think, the more useful words to describe this is that we're creating a sense of space the space of knowing. And this space of knowing, this still, silent space of knowing, it's always there in really heated moments of our life, really calm moments of our life, when we're really sleepy, when we're really awake. And right now, as I'm mentioning this, you know, you can just, especially those of you who've been practicing for a while, you might even be able to intuit that no matter how the personality is right now, you might be in a funk, you might be really inspired. No matter how the personality is right now, there is this space of knowing, this still, silent space of wisdom, of mindfulness that knows this is how it is. And in a way, it doesn't matter the particular state of your body or mind right now. 
that silent, empty, still space of knowing will know. It's like this. Is this making sense? And this is really the fruit of regular mindfulness practice, is that this presence of wisdom, of mindful wisdom or mindfulness, becomes more obvious. And as it becomes more obvious, it becomes a greater and greater refuge. It's in a, in a sense, we more regularly rest back into that refuge. And we just let our personality, our life, do itself. <clears throat> our life lives itself. The personality, it's like a force of nature, you know, something that's been set in motion, like weather is set in motion, and other natural things are set in motion. Well, our personality, in very much the same way, has been set in motion. And the way we sort of cultivate skillfulness, non-harming in life, is by being cultivating this space of wise presence that is aware, that is knowing, <clears throat> receptive of this unfolding life, this personality unfolding through all the just different twists and turns of our life situation. That kind of background or pervasive sense of presence is the correcting mechanism. Because when the personality is unfolding in really harmful, unskillful ways, that wisdom, mindfulness is going to know it. Oh yeah, this isn't working. <laughs> this isn't good. It's just going to know it. Oh, it's like this. Going to hell is like this, you know? And that immediate, that's all. We don't need this big parental voice to say, you bad boy, naughty. <laughs> we don't need anything extra. All we need is that simple, calm, wise presence that understands this isn't good. In the same way when we're being skillful. Then the simple, calm presence there's no need to sort of be proud or think we're better than somebody else. Just that simple, wise thing. This is, this is pretty good. This is working out. That's all we need is that simple recognition. Not even those words, you know, that I just spoke, but just the recognition itself. The hardest thing in the world, of course, is to trust mindfulness because it's so simple. The Buddha, in one of the more famous of all his talks, his talk on mindfulness, it's called the Satipatthana Sutta. Sutta, it's like the word sutra, um, like the thread, you know, they used to, now they don't do that anymore, do they? I guess they use staples or maybe just, now they even have these, uh, <laughs> my sister just had major surgery, and they didn't even sew her up. They just let the wound kind of heal on its own. They just kind of wrap it in a bandage and let the skin migrate back. But in the past, you know, they'd sew you up. And this word sutta or sutra, it's from the same term. It's like a thread, the thread of the teachings. So the, the different talks the Buddha gave, they're called suttas or sutras. And so one of the most famous suttas, the Satipatthana, the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Basically, it's a talk on being mindful of the body and mind. And he just broke the mind out into three parts. So that's why you get the four foundations, the body and three aspects of the mind. And in this, he begins by saying, practitioners 
This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of stress, dissatisfaction, discontent, for the acquiring of the true method, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. Nibbana means the cessation of that which is afflictive, like greediness is afflictive, aversion is afflictive. So Nibbana literally means cessation, the cessation of what's afflictive. Sometimes people translate it as the unbinding of the heart. Our heart feels bound up with stress, with agitation, with greediness, with fear, with aversion. And so the unbinding of the heart is another sort of translation of Nibbana. So that's pretty, uh, you know, that's a pretty hard sell the Buddha's giving for mindfulness. You know, the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, the disappearance of stress, discontentment, dis, uh, for the acquiring of the true method for the realization of unbinding, the unbinding of our hearts, the full release of the heart. He goes on to talk about, you know, the beginning part of the path, you know, in terms of the mind and body. He says that a practitioner abides contemplating the body or the mind, diligent, clearly knowing, mindful, free from distress and discontent in regard to the world. Right? So free from desires and discontent. That means that as we're opening to the present moment, we're not confused. We're still going to have desire and aversion, discontent, right? Because we're still an ordinary being under the influence of our conditioning, our habits. But we're practicing not being confused by our desires, our fears, or discontent. So like at the beginning of our sit, you know, I don't know how it is for you, but for me, when I sit down and I now I'm less distracted because I'm in my meditation mode. And now I actually have to feel my body, which I've been distracted from for a while, right? Because we've been lost in thought, doing this, doing that. And now we're sitting, and all of a sudden, there it is. It's like the big 800-pound gorilla in the room. The body feels like this. And now immediately when I'm feeling my body, then that's when the discontent comes in. Like, oh, what can I do to fix my body so it doesn't feel so bad? So we practice not being confused. Like when we start to open our mind, our heart, to the present moment, this movement of mindfulness, we practice not being confused by patterns of reactivity. We may not like what we're opening to. That's often the case. You know, when we start to notice how the mind is, notice how the heart and body is, we may not like it. But we're practicing opening to it, not in terms of whether we like it or dislike it, but in terms of what it actually is. So the pleasantness or the unpleasantness, we take it. We accept it. That's part of opening. So just the first movement, the first moment of mindfulness has to be some kind of fearlessness about what's pleasant and unpleasant, not being afraid of what's unpleasant and not feeling the need to grasp 
or control what's pleasant, but just to see it as a present moment happening. So you can experiment with it now, like if you have pain, or if you go home and have a nice bowl of your favorite food, like you know ice cream or something like that. Like noticing the pleasantness of it without being confused by it. Like what is the experience of being mindful of pleasantness? Or mindful, being mindful of neutrality when it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Or mindful of unpleasant. Now that's probably something you can do right now. There's probably some unpleasant experience in your body right now. You know, I, I have stiffness in my left hip. I have a more burning sensation in my left knee. I have kind of a wiry sort of feeling more pervasively through my body. I can turn my attention to any one of those experiences. And initially, you know, the habit will be to relate with aversion to the unpleasant sensations. But I can just notice that habit of not liking and then just continue to feel, to open, to be interested in the direct experience. So the intensity of that stinging, burning feeling or the sort of unpleasantness of that more achy, throbbing feeling in the hip or the sort of more unpleasantness of that wiry feeling. To be really undefended, meaning not not being confused, not believing the thoughts that are arising in conjunction with that experience. The thoughts are just thoughts. The throbbing is just throbbing. So this is the real gateway for mindfulness is we're willing to receive things as they actually are, not in terms of our thoughts about them. We're not saying our thoughts about them are right or wrong. But our thoughts about them are just thoughts being known. And the other experience is just that, whether it's a sound or sensation or you know, sight, whatever it might be. I want to end tonight by reading what I think is a really wonderful description of mindfulness practice. It comes from an article by Joko Beck in a collection of essays by women Buddhist teachers called Being Bodies. Uh, came out a number of years ago. It's a wonderful book, by the way. But anyway, Joko Beck's article is at the very end of this collection. And at the very end of her article, she has these three paragraphs. So the secret of life that we are all looking for is just this. To develop through sitting and daily life practice the power and courage to return to that which we have spent a lifetime hiding from. To rest in the bodily experience of the present moment, even if, this, even if it is a feeling of being humiliated, of failing, of abandonment, of unfairness, we learn to rest in our experience without thought, to sink into a non-dual state, even if we can only stay for a few seconds at first. With time and development, we can learn to rest there for, a long, for long periods of time. As we rest in this non-duality, we leave behind a phenomenal world of problems and dualistic solutions. We start, in, we start with including and clarifying our psychological world, but we end in a transformation that cannot be really described in words. 
we can only suggest a way of living that is free, compassionate, functional. And in this way, our so-called problems can be dealt with in a more open and compassionate manner. Call this enlightenment if you wish, but please remember we do, we do not do this bodily experiencing just once or in one sitting. We are describing a lifetime process with many ups and downs, probably one that is never complete. It doesn't matter. What does matter is the slow, slow shift in the way we see and live our lives. This is Zen practice and an end to our substitute life. So Joko Back is a Zen teacher, uh, one of the elders in the Western uh, Buddhist meditation community, and uh, has a couple of wonderful books. So I'll leave it here. We have about 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear from some people in the group. Your own direct experience of mindfulness, what seems to get in the way, clarify your understanding, ask questions about the talk tonight. So if you have something to say, please say your name as well, and anybody can begin. Any thoughts? Yeah. Christina, um, so I have a problem where I have this habit, I'm sure if I don't... Maybe a little louder, Christina. If I don't think about something, really intensely that I'm denying it's existence and therefore it'll never be solved. So it's like when I try to be mindful and I think, okay, I'm thinking about this, and it's like, well, of course I expect to solve it. And so I can get, I get distracted in the process of trying to solve something with thought rather than just letting it be because I'm afraid if I just let it be that it'll I'm not taking responsibility for whatever it is that I'm focusing on. Yeah. And it's well, really painful. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the important thing because, you know, when something's really painful, it should be an important uh, alarm clock for us. Like, um, you know, we may not be able to make the pain go away, and wanting the pain go away, of course, is just another pain. You know, it's just more stress or more suffering. But when we're suffering, I mean, the, the suffering has one advantage and only one advantage. It can be the cause for the heart, the mind, stopping and taking a closer look. What the heck's going on here? Does it have to be this way? Does it have to hurt? Right? And the Buddha says this he, in one passage, one talk. He says, suffering is either the cause for more suffering, for you know, beating our breasts, screaming, you know, or it's the cause for search. You know. Is there anybody who knows anything about this experience of suffering that might be useful? So we open our mind, and we're willing to try something that's not our habit. Because generally, we always approach suffering with our habit energy. So in that experience, you know, where you're feeling compelled to think about something, there's a problem, there seems to be a problem in your life, it seems appropriate to think about it. And let's just assume you're not obsessively thinking about it. Like, you haven't thought about it for a while, and now it's there, it's just that this issue has arisen, and it feels appropriate to think about it. Now, if we have the habit of avoiding problems in life, like pretending they're not there, and then, unavoidably, it will sneak in sometimes, you know, and there it is, and we may want to bury it again, but maybe we know better. So often, in those kinds of situations, we have to be willing to receive the 
um, residual pain of having been repressing or suppressing something. There's really no way around it except the temporary solution of continually suppressing or repressing it. But the pressure is only going to build. It's still going to leak out from time to time, except now it's going to leak out with more, pre- uh, more pressure. It's going to seem like a bigger monster. And we're going to be more compelled to repression, repress it. And so you see it really is a negative pattern. So when, if we have enough wisdom, we realize this is really intense, intensely unpleasant. But it's not going to help to deny it. What's going to help is to be honest oh, this is how it is. This is what the heart-mind is feeling. This is what the heart-mind is seeing. This confusion seems to be unbearable. This pain feels unworkable. And then you insert, maybe not so. Who knows? Let's see. Because that's our choice in life, to spend a lifetime running from the way it is or to cultivate the power, the skill to turn toward life as it actually is. Because it's already the way that it is. So to run from it endlessly and to have to um, spend so much energy to maintain denial and distraction, that turns an ordinary life into real hell. To have to keep moving psychically, and physically in order to avoid feeling what we're feeling, to avoid our life. It's really insane. Does that kind of connect with... Mm-hmm. Yes, Shannon. On top of that, I have found it helpful um, just keeping in mind that no feeling is final. And so um, that being that seems unbearable moves through you, yeah. that is providing a lot of comfort for you to know that it will move Yeah, and that is so such a powerful cause for faith that you know often it's like the image I use is like a big wave, you know, and if we've been running from the big wave, you know, we're going to get clobbered. If we stop and face it, we're still going to get clobbered, but very it's there's going to be a lot more composure, you know, and that, and it's going to be very soon over because we're diving into it instead of running from it. And so there's something about stopping and turning relaxing and facing the way it is, like the Buddha described with the fear. And we get good at it. And we see what Shannon describes, which is so liberating that that for one, one thing is the heart isn't destroyed by opening to what's difficult. It actually gets strengthened. And the other thing is this deep insight gets confirmed over and over again that everything comes and goes. Nothing lasts. So even really terrible times. I mean, think about all the times in our life when our life felt completely unworkable, total despair. It's come and gone. Now, this is an important reflection to do every day, to realize that those miserable moments have come and they've gone. They didn't go because we made them go away. They went away because that's what everything does. It comes and it goes. And and the other reason, you know, reflection that's so powerful is to remember that all of those great moments we've had in life, they've also come and gone. And that strips away the neurotic attachment to wanting good things to happen for us. 
Because whatever we can imagine that we want, it's going to come and go too. Thanks, Shannon, for bringing that. Yeah, Maria, and then back in the corner. I was um, really helped a few weeks ago, although it took me a while and an oblique way to get there, uh, when you were talking about um, not taking things personally. Because in a different way, I had arrived at something like that. Um, and now I'm, I'm in a couple of very difficult situations. My mother is quite old. She's had a wonderful, well, she's had a long life. Um, but I still find myself wracked with grief um, at the prospect of losing her. Um, and believe me, there were years when I thought, oh, God, maybe she would die. That mind watching the squirrel, squirrels out by our bird feeder. We put out a lot of black sunflower seeds and they seems, you know, sometimes there are eight squirrels in the yard. But you know, they're nasty with each other, you know, about who's, who gets what and how close they can get before the strongest one attacks. And and that that isn't personal either. You know, I can catch myself getting... Yeah, exactly. And I can get, I can start taking it personally, like how unjust that is, that, you know, this stronger squirrel is sort of dominating, and I kind of want to do something about it. And, you know, we do do things about it, you know, spreading the seeds out so he can't cover that much dirt, you know, but but it's like, I don't have to take it personally, I don't have to personify that situation, just like you're saying, with the grief or with, uh, you know, your department. And I think the important thing in what you said, Maria, is the, the understanding that the wisdom that it's not personal doesn't take away from being intimate. So we can really feel the pain of people not getting along in the department or really intimately feel the pain of grief and also have that very powerful understanding and it's not personal. That it's not like a 
it's not personal, isn't a way to distance ourselves. It's actually a way to get closer to the department, you know, to the culture. You know, to be right in the middle, like to be able to survive right in the middle of that academic culture or to survive right in the middle of a mother-daughter terrible grief and not be confused by it or have to, you know, get rid of it or control it. Yeah, I forgot your name. Mike. the thought that it's going to last forever is just a thought. Do you know what I mean? So like when we have pain, we don't know it's going to go away. I mean, we have we have the, sort of an arrogant notion this is going to go away. But some pain's done. Like, you know, I'm now in my 50s and, I, you know, there's just more pain that comes. And, uh, you know, I've been in times in my life where certain like fear or other kinds of emotional pain have been relatively constant for a while, I'm sure. That's true for most of us. So the, what makes chronic pain really unbearable is the idea that this is forever. And of course, I know, I, I mean, it's very easy for someone without a lot of chronic pain to say this. So given that, the idea would be to um, take it as it actually is. and to be mindful, to be aware of the natural fluctuations in the level of pain, and just to appreciate the change in that, and not to build anything around the direct experience, because it doesn't help. And that you ha we can have real control over. We may not be able to control, like the, the pain may be physiological, there may be nothing through mental training or medical um, you know, strategies that you can do about the chronic pain. But what we can absolutely do is not add anything to it. And often what we add to pain is worse than the pain itself. You know, the mental stress, the, you know, talk about unbearable ideas, the thought that we're going to be in pain for the rest of our lives would be a very toxic thought to have it itself would be really intensely unpleasant. So that, you know, you could help the person recognize the layers of thinking around the experience of regular pain and uh, learn how to sort of see that as extra and then appreciate the release when those thoughts are dropped. There will be a real release. There may be physical pain remaining, but we can appreciate that release of the mental pain. And the, this is, you know, the Buddha isn't teaching a path of uh, freedom from pain. He's teaching a path of going beyond mental suffering, the extra stuff, because pain is inevitable in life. And apparently, it seems, some people have more physical pain than other people.
at least, you know, at certain times for sure. That's true. And we have to leave it here, so let's just take a few seconds that go to work.